The prophet Peter wrote this concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Heavenly Father, from, from the beginning of time, from the foundations of the earth, you have put your plan in motion, a plan to redeem a people unto yourself, a plan to, to create a, a pure and holy nation of priests, people who would call on your name, people who would worship you with their whole heart and whole mind. Lord Jesus, all through the ages, you have told of your coming, anointed one, appointed one. But we in this generation, we have the privilege of knowing the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. Peter said that these are the things that angels long to to see And yet we behold them, not only in your word, but in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us for for taking for granted this very precious treasure of grace and salvation given by you. Forgive us for ignoring all that you have done to bring us to this place. Lord Jesus, teach us to live with a sense of expectancy of your work in our lives of your work around us, of your, of your gospel being proclaimed to the whole world. And as we look to the future, Lord Jesus, we, we, we see you as the king of glory. May we walk in anticipation of your kingdom, your rule and reign forever. May it begin here today as we open up your word. Send your Holy Spirit to speak to us as you have promised. Lift the word off the page and into our hearts. Set our hearts in alignment with you that we may walk in your joy and your strength and your grace. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we don't live in a day that's... We live in a day that's not unlike that of the prophet Isaiah. We live in an age of self-important people, self-proclaimed experts, influencers, and even wannabe royalty. They seem to dot the the landscape all around us, the network news, the social media, the blogosphere. And if we follow the press releases, we would think that the world revolves around their opinions, around their fashion decisions, and around their love lives. Right? Somebody say yes. Last week, Pastor Caleb walked us through Psalm chapter 2. And he talked about the, God's view of the importance of world leaders that view their roles through a self-centered, godless lens. Psalm 2 says that not only does he laugh at their self-importance, but he also announces the establishment of his king on his throne as the king of the world. So, to, to, to go with Psalm chapter 2, how does... How does God set his king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem? How does God do that? 
How does God set his king on his holy hill as he declares in Psalm chapter 2? Now you would think that the king of the universe would demand a grand entrance, the likes of which Westminster Abbey, the streets of Rome, the streets of Berlin, and the streets of Washington, D.C. have never seen before. But that was not to be for the first advent of God's king. We know the Christmas story, which is the narrative of his incarnation, God taking on flesh. It's a story of God announcing his son, his throne, and his kingdom, the king foretold in Psalm chapter 2. There's a lot of things that separate King Jesus from any other leader, any other ruler or royalty in history. We begin with the fact that Jesus is God. I mean, that separates him from everyone anyway. But he also performed miracles that couldn't be explained. He, then he, that included raising people from the dead. He had knowledge of people and things that could not be explained He spoke and he taught with authority about eternal truths. And we could go on about this King Jesus. Jesus was, Jesus is, a king like no other. But there's something else about him that we don't speak of often enough. He's the king of promise. He's the king of prophecy. It's been calculated that 27% of the Bible is predictive. We see predictions about Israel, about the Gentile nations. We see predictions about individuals and kings. We see predictions about the Messiah, the the sent one, Jesus Christ. We see much of our predictions are about him coming. We see predictions about the events of history. We see predictions about the future of the earth and all of creation. We see prophecies about the the coming end of days, of life after death. We see prophecies concerning eternal realities. Some of the prophecies that we see in Scripture are things about near-term events or happenings. Well, some are long-term prophecies, like Isaiah talked about, that he would never see fulfilled. Both are part of the Scriptures. Even Isaiah chapter 9, which Isaiah quoted for us this morning, is both a near-term and a long-term prophecy. Now, I understand that there are some 300 prophecies related or dedicated to the first coming of Christ. 300. The Bible told us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that he would take refuge in Egypt, that he would come as a, from, uh, from Nazareth, that he'd be born of a virgin And we could go on. And Jesus himself prophesied many things about about his ministry, about himself. He predicted predicted that Peter would deny him. He predicted that Judas would betray him. He predicted that he would die on the cross. And it was prophesied to the day when Jesus Christ would enter into Jerusalem as the king of Israel. To the day. To the day. The Bible is amazing when it comes to revealing history, to revealing God's plans and telling us what is to come. Indeed, the days in which we live are the most exciting because of what God is is doing among us, what God is about to do among us, what God is about to do in the near future. I believe that we're living in those days. 
We just may be the last generation of Christians before the world falls headlong into the wrath and judgment of God. We may be the last generation before Jesus Christ comes and calls his church to come home. Come and see. Come and be with me. Rise. When the trumpet sounds and Jesus Christ calls his church, I believe we may be the last generation for that. No other world figure can say that about themselves. I have a couple of quotes here that I think are are interesting and appropriate. The first one says, The people of all other nations but the Jewish seem to look backwards and also to live for the present. But in the Jewish scheme, everything is prospective and preparatory. Nothing, however trifling, is done for itself alone, but all is typical of something yet to come. Let's see the next quote. Jesus of Nazareth on his borrowed farm beast with his way-worn company of poor men and yet offering himself to his nation as the king of prophecy is the speaking reminder of the powers which lie beyond our sight. I wonder when we, in the church of Jesus Christ, will learn from him to trust those powers and to cease from man. Such is the importance of prophecy in Scripture. No other world figure can say these things about themselves. No other nation or culture has the means, without God's prophetic revelation, to understand the past or to recognize the future, let alone to foretell the future. Everyone desires to know the future, and many seek ways to discern it. I think it's wired into us. Ancient cultures depended on astrologers and seers Many, even today, consult Ouija boards, tarot cards, palm reading, consulting the dead and other occultic means to see the future. And I understand that even at, 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 uh, at the casino in our neighborhood, oftentimes they will bring in these folks to do, to do readings, right, in, in, in a large auditorium full of people and to contact the dead and things like that. Right here in our own neighborhood. And people pay money for it. All of which are condemned in Scripture. On a secular level, we want to know the future, so we watch trends in the market. We watch trends in the media. We, watch a, uh, we, we gather up a multitude of quantifiable studies so we can chart the future. I believe we're wired to seek these things, to seek the future, to peer into the future, and to seek the unknown. But listen, it's only through the lens of God's prophetic revelation that we can move with confidence through history. I'll say that again. It's only through the lens of God's prophetic revelation that we can move with confidence through history, that we can comprehend our generation, that we can live with hope in the course and the events of our lives. It's only because we know what God is about in our generation. It's only because of the surety of God's prophetic record that God can say, for I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. God also says this, who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And is there no God apart from me? And he goes on in Proverbs 23, there is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. And then Jesus said in John 14, and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. You see the role of prophecy in Scripture? 
As we consider the coming of the King of Glory this Advent and this Christmas season, we need to consider the importance of Jesus, of seeing him as the King of promise, the King of prophecy. Only the King of Glory writes the history of the world. Only the King of Glory knows our past and knows our future. It is Jesus that holds the future in his hands. Understanding this this profound truth for our salvation forms the foundation of our hope and our confidence. As Christians, knowing the future is in his control and under the authority of the King of Promise is called our blessed hope. It assures us, it motivates us, and it calls us into all that Jesus has for us. So I'd like to look at that today. I'd like to talk about the fact that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Prophecies fulfilled, promises kept. As we've already mentioned, there are approximately 300 prophecies in the Old Testament related to the first advent of Jesus Christ and to his ministry, to his ministry and his life. Scripture tells us, as Isaiah told us a few moments ago, Scripture tells us that a false prophet speaking a false testimony is not to be listened to. If someone gives a prophecy and it doesn't come true, they are a false prophet and they are condemned to death. So, so profound is God's feelings about people who represent him falsely. So if there, so if there are promises from God, if there are prophe- promises, prophecies concerning Christ and they come from the mouth of God, then they must come true. And testing their veracity only seems to only seeks to confirm our faith and our confidence in God, who he is, what he promises, and what he says he'll do. In 1952, a book entitled Science Speaks was published by an author by, by the name of Peter Stoner. He had a long list of credentials in the area of astronomy and mathematics. In one of his studies... Stoner taught a class on Christian evidences, and he challenged his students, Christian students, to gather scientific probabilities on the prophecies of Christ being fulfilled in Christ alone. What are the percentages, what are the probabilities of all these prophecies being being resolved in Jesus Christ? And over the course of several courses, he had 600 students participating in this study and this research. Go take the law of probability... Take it right out of your math books and let's apply it to the prophecies of Jesus Christ. And he chose eight prophecies. And these prophecies were that Christ was to be born in Bethlehem, that there will be a forerunner to Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, right? That he would enter Jerusalem as a king seated on a donkey, that he'd be betrayed by a friend and that he'd have wounds in his hands, that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that those 30 pieces of silver would be returned, and and the prophecy is so specific, it even says that they would be cast on the floor. That he would be oppressed, that he'd be tried, and that he would not defend himself. Isaiah said that. And that he would die by crucifixion, Psalm 22. Out of 300 prophecies... They studied eight prophecies and they asked themselves, what are the probabilities of one person fulfilling all eight of these? Now maybe you've heard this before, but I find this fascinating. 
and I, I won't begin to explain it properly. But using the law of probability, Stoner and his students set out to determine the likelihood of these being fulfilled in, in one single person. I don't have the expertise to do this, but I'm going to try it anyway. Not knowing anything about something doesn't stop me from talking about it. They define the probability of each prophecy, if I'm understanding the process correctly. They take each one of the eight prophecies, they assign a probability to it based on world populations, based on like the, the city of Bethlehem. If he's born in Bethlehem, how many people have been born in Bethlehem? What's the population of the earth? What's the average? They go into all these things and they assign a probability. What's the probability of one person being born in Bethlehem with this prophecy? And they came up with huge numbers. One to the tenth something power. Okay? They do all eight of them, and they came, and then they, then they do some math formula with the law of probability. Is Pete here today? Pete, I'm so sorry. Did, did you do this last year? Okay, well, I'm just going to do a reminder of it so they can remember what you said about it. Okay. Here it is. They came up with this probability. One person in 10 to the 17th power. That is one person out of 17 zeros would fulfill all eight of these prophecies. That's 1.7 sextillion. I didn't even know there was such a thing. So how do we visualize this? According to Stoner, if you mark one of 10 tickets, if you mark one of them and you put them in a hat, you have a one in 10 chance of pulling that same ticket out of the hat, right? Okay, that's what we're working with. He said, if you take this number, 10 to the 17th power, and you, and you make that many silver dollars, and you, whatever, 1.7 sextillion silver dollars, it would cover the face of Texas two feet deep. Now you mark one of those silver dollars, just paint it red, just mark one of them, throw it out in there someplace, blindfold somebody and send them out there and tell them on the first try you've got to pick out the red one doesn't work. That's the, that's the probability right there. And then so they added eight more prophecies to it. If you add eight more prophecies to the calculation, 16 prophecies, the probabil probability is even more staggering, 1 in 10 to the 45th power. I didn't even try to write that number. Now this is what boggled my mind, and I, 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 I thought about not even mentioning this, because I don't know if I can get this story correct or not, but if you take... He said, if you take the distance between the earth and the sun, trying to explain what is 10 to the 45th power, and you took all those silver dollars and you made a big ball out of it, okay? And you took that big ball and you set it with the earth in the center of it. Are you with me so far? Stay with me. I'm not sure I understand it either. So if you shake your head, no, that's okay. If you put all those silver dollars in a big ball, 10 to the 45th power, with the earth in the center it would be 30 times the distance of the earth to the sun across. Paint one red, throw it in the middle of that, stir it up, and then tell a blindfolded man to go find the red coin. That boggles the mind, doesn't it? That's the chance of one person fulfilling 16 prophecies in Scripture. Now, if the prophets declared these things in their own wisdom, there's no way these could all come true. 
The fact that they're all verifiable in the person of Jesus Christ tells us that the King of glory, the creator of time, of history, and of all creation is behind all of these prophecies. We cannot deny it. We cannot deny that this is God-breathed. He knows the future. He knows his plan. He knows all of history. The whole timeline of history, past, present, and future, is in his hands. Okay? We, we just have to stop and, and take a breath and, and think about that. And then when Jesus came, he looked to the future, the future foretold and the promises that he made. He looked to the future and he gave prophecies about himself. He said, for example, that the temple would be destroyed and that he would raise it up in three days. And we know that both of those things were true. He said that he would rise again from the dead in three days. He, pre he predicted his betrayal. He predicted the false trial and the accusations. We could spend the rest of the day going through all the prophecies that Jesus gave about himself and about the future of, of Israel, etc., etc. Even Peter, he predicted the way that he would die. Jesus spoke about the near future and the distant future. Jesus, along with the New Testament authors, goes into great detail concerning the future of the world, the future of the nations, the future of non-believers, the future of believers. Let's just, oh, I wish we could just stop and spend time on each one of these, but just let me rattle some of these off, okay? Some of the things that we know the future will hold for us because they're spoken of right here in Scripture. The first one that I believe is, is, uh, is in our near future is that of the rapture, the kidnapping, the taking away. Brothers and sisters, I believe with my whole heart that the scripture is clear that the, the time of the taking away of the church is imminent. It might happen today, it might happen tomorrow, it might happen a year from now, I'm not sure, but I think we're living in those days. We're living in the generation. Do we understand the privilege it is in all of history in all of history, the prophets foretold these things but knew that they were speaking about a generation that would come. The angels longed to look into these things. And yet we, this, generation's, this generation, in vessels of clay, Paul says, we have this very great salvation and we know the beginning from the end. And this generation, I believe, will be the one that is taken up into heaven. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus Christ will... Hear the trumpet sound. The Father will say, go and get your bride. And he will proclaim to all of us who are in Christ Jesus, come, come home. Following that, there will be seven years of tribulation. Somewhere in there, there'll be a peace treaty signed with Israel. The tribulation is all about Israel returning to the Lord, returning to God. An alliance will seek to destroy Israel. They will, they will swoop down on Israel to destroy, but they themselves will be destroyed. We'll be in heaven as far as I know. So we won't be able to see this unless we can watch it from heaven. I'm not sure. I would just love to see that. All the nations of the earth gathered against Israel and God destroying them without a shot being fired from Israel. Won't that be something? These are in random order. There will be the mark of the beast. You won't be able to buy or sell if you don't have the mark. There will be a false prophet, one, one who promotes a one-world religion that the whole world will line up with, all lined up against Jesus Christ. The Antichrist will come, and he will demand worship of himself as God. 
The Bible tells us that there will be false teaching in the church, and I think we're already well into that. That the believers, the, the church will be confused. The church will be led away from God. Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus will come. His second coming will be just in the same way that he left the earth. As the angels, remember out in Acts chapter 1, the disciples were standing there looking up into heaven and Jesus disappeared into the clouds and the angels said, what? Remember? Why do you stand here staring? He's going to come back in the same way that he left. He's going to come back riding on the clouds, riding on a white horse as the king of kings and the, and the, and the, and the, and the Lord of lords. Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. He will stand on the Mount of Olives. Some of, some of us had the privilege of standing there last spring in the very, very place where Jesus Christ will stand when he returns. At the end of the age, Armageddon will come and all the nations of the earth will gather against God himself. And then we'll move into the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. A thousand year period where Jesus Christ will rule and reign with his perfect justice, his perfect peace, his perfect kingdom, he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And guess what, brothers and sisters? If you are in Jesus Christ this morning, you will rule and reign with him. I can't comprehend that either. We will be given responsibilities. While we are in heaven during the tribulation, we will, we will, we will uh, be in the presence of Jesus Christ, and we will also stand for review by Jesus Christ. The Bema Seed of Jesus Christ is called. And each of us as believers, I believe our whole lives will be shown. And I think Jesus Christ will look at our lives and he'll say, what did you do with the grace that I gave to you? Won't that be a day? I don't know. I don't know how God does this because he says there won't be any tears in heaven and there won't be any regrets in heaven. So somehow he's going to review our lives and, and we're going to see all of it. I won't be overwhelmed with regret. And I heard recently that we'll receive crowns. And if we understand Scripture correctly, that each of us, will, each of us in Jesus Christ will receive a crown because Jesus Christ will be looking for the ways in all of our lives that we yielded ourselves to him. We'll receive our crowns. Someone says, well, isn't that a little bit self-centered? I mean, is that why you want to go to heaven so you can get a crown? Is that, is that why you do everything you do so you can get a crown? No. Well, yes. But you know what you do with the crown when you, when you, when you receive it? Throw it right back at his feet. And you say, worthy is the lamb. Our, our salvation will never be so, so vivid as it is in that moment. The great things that Jesus Christ has done for us. There's the other side of the coin as well, the great white throne judgment. Those who are not in Jesus Christ will face a judgment, a judgment of the things that they've done, a judgment of whether their name appears in the book of life or not. If you're in that line, you are not in Jesus Christ. If you're in that line, it's too late. You will be judged with Satan and all of his followers. And the harsh reality is that Satan and all of his followers, the false prophet, the beast, and all of that will be thrown into the lake of fire and those who follow after him will, follow, will, will also be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. 
Those who are in Jesus Christ step off into eternity in the presence of God. Those who are not in Jesus Christ step off into an eternity away from Jesus Christ. That's called hell. These are just some of the timeline events of prophecy. But I think to myself, those are, those are the timeline events. But what about the other things that we've been promised? We've been promised heaven. When, I, I, we, need to, we need to come back to that subject, don't we? What does heaven look like? You've been promised heaven. And Jesus Christ is in the middle of it. He's, he's the light there. His glory will shine. We'll, we'll be living in the presence and the glory of Jesus Christ. In all the beauty and the glory that comes with in, being in heaven with him. There will be worship there. There will be praise. There will be, I believe, unending testimony of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. I believe Isaiah will come and he will tell us how God worked in his life. I believe Peter and Moses and, and all of them will come. And I believe you will come. And I will come. And if it's not in front of a large audience, it'll be one-on-one as we just share all throughout eternity. Look what Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has done for me. We will never get tired of it. We'll have responsibilities. We'll, have, we'll, um, we'll experience perf- uh, perfection in our work, purpose and fulfillment in our work. We'll experience pure joy. There won't be any more tears in heaven. There'll be perfect love. There'll be abundant life as God has designed it, as God has purposed it. There'll be safety and security. Scripture tells us that that the gates of heaven will be left open. Well, how can you leave the gates of the wall open? You can only do that because there is no more enemy. There's no more evil. There's nothing more that can stand against you. Safety and security. And it's a place that's prepared by Jesus for us. And apparently, we get our own mansions. Brothers and sisters, the list could go on of the things that await us. The scripture tells us are awaiting us. If we consider all the prophecies that have been spoken by the prophets under the power of the Holy Spirit, we have to realize that what God says he will do, he will do. If he declares it, it will come to pass. Pass. So when we consider all the prophecies yet to be fulfilled, we must look with anticipation. We've got to look with a sense of awe of all that God is doing in the world and in history. We cannot, brothers and sisters, we cannot tremble in fear. We have to move in confidence, move with confidence in a world that's moving in his direction. It's all moving in the way that he intends for his purpose and for his glory. That's our hope. The king of promise is our living hope. We celebrate the coming of Christ. We celebrate the king of promise at Christmas time. These truths are the reasons we celebrate our hope during the Advent season. Brothers and sisters, what is hope? Is it not the certainty that God will fulfill everything that he says he will do? Is it not that we know that God's promises are true? That his promised life and his blessed future are ours because he has acted in the past. That's hope. Biblical hope is not based on the unknown. Biblical hope is not, is not based on the I hope so kind of faith. It's based on the certainty of God's word. It's based on the certainty of his fulfillment of all things until now in the history of salvation. We can look back and say, yes, God did what he said we could do.
he would do, and therefore we can look forward. Is it not that we know that all of his promises are true? Didn't the Apostle Paul write to us and say, in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are what? Yes. Yes. This is why we can say that. His promised life, his blessed future, they're all ours because of how he has acted in the past. Christ came to be the king of promise. The world seeks for hope in many ways, in many places. And some things, we, we, they, they do give reasons for hope. But it's all temporal. And in other ways, the world looks for hope in places where there is, there's just no anchor for hope. But that's not true for the follower of Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. If you would, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Actually, I'm going to start in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Titus, not Timothy. Listen to this, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That's what he lived for. That's what his ministry was all about. For the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In hope of eternal life, there's hope. In hope of eternal life, future eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Isn't that something? There it is. Paul says, prophecy. God said it. God will do it. And he's banking his whole life, his whole ministry, and the word to, the, to, to Titus. He said that, that's all based on this. If God says it, he'll do it. And he gave us the hope of eternal life. Turn over to chapter 2. I'll just read verse 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13. Waiting. 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 For our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This hope is from God himself. It's not found anywhere else. The world cannot offer it. We, we cannot find it in the world. This hope of eternal life, this hope of life in the presence of Jesus Christ, this abundant life that he has promised us, it was promised to us long ago, and it was realized in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to call that our blessed hope, the anticipation of the coming of Christ. It's our sure foundation. It's our single hope. And it's made sure at the advent of Jesus Christ at Christmas and will be seen in his glory at the second coming. All the ants, all the prophecies of calling for the appointed one, the anointed one of God are found in Christmas. The narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. With the birth of Jesus Christ and the baby in the manger, God is saying, I will do what I say I will do. I told you I would send a redeemer. I am sending him. 
And so why would we look at prophecy in the rest of Scripture and say, ah, it doesn't matter to me? Because it's all the work of God going forward. Hope. Hope. So what do we do with this? First of all, you need to understand that there is nobody like Jesus Christ. You're going to go out and watch National Geographic Channel today or Discovery Channel or something like that, or you're going to go to school uh, after, after break or something. You're going to go back to the workplace, and somebody's going to tell you what? Jesus Christ was a good man. He's a good teacher. He's a good philosopher. And they're also going to follow up. If they don't say it, they're going to, they're going to think it, that he's no different than anybody else. He's no different from Buddha. He's no different from Muhammad. He's no different from the founder of Jehovah's Witness or Mormons. He's no different than any of that. He's another prophet in the line of prophets. Right? You're going to hear that. But there is no other person, let alone a prophet or a religious leader in the entire history of the world, who can say these things about himself. Jesus Christ alone. He stands alone as the anointed one of God. There's no one like him. So why is this important to me? Prophecy comforts us. In 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Paul writes that we are to encourage each other with these words. And it's all about the end times, the, the coming of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is. We need to comfort one another with it. Prophecy calms our hearts in the midst of crazy, wild times. We, we live in, 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 in times of uncertainty. We live in times of arrogant leaders. We live in times of, of people who just boldly proclaim that they don't need God or his ways or his truth. But prophecy says that God, God laughs at the arrogant and his way will be accomplished. Prophecy is a testimony that leads people to Jesus Christ. My mom will tell you that, that it was, it's the understanding of prophecy and the understanding of the Lord's return that drew her to Jesus Christ. Am I saying that right? These encouragements lead us to Jesus Christ. Prophecy produces a holy people. We read it in Titus chapter 2 that if we understand that the Lord is coming, if we, under, if we walk in this blessed hope, then what's the natural response of it? Purify ourselves as he is holy. Become holy as he is holy. Be, be part of God's called out people and walk in it. Walk in the power of the gospel. Walk in the presence of Jesus Christ. God is calling out a people to himself, and that's the natural response to this blessed hope that God has given to us. It's not just, oh, isn't that nice? It's not just, oh, I studied that and I got that, I got it all figured out. No, it's walk in it. Purify yourselves as he is holy. And I can't help but think we, we sing the Christmas hymns and as the worship team comes forward to close our worship time this morning. I can't help but think of all the hymns that we sing. And I think of old little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. I love that hymn, that Christmas carol. It's the world is sleeping. The world is just going on in all of its ways. But in eternity, in God's, in God's plan, in God's reality, Eternity is about to break forth into our world. I love that truth. And you, you just read, read the lyrics of all the Christmas carols, the hymns that we're about to sing this holiday season. We have been singing. And you'll see these truths brought up. The world is desperate. The world needs a Savior. And God is sending His Son, Jesus Christ. Because He said He would. And it always, 
always looks forward to the day when he's coming again. Is it any wonder, is it any wonder that out in the middle of that field where the shepherds were minding their own business, tending to their flocks, that the the heavens opened up, the clouds parted, the sky opened up, and the glory of heaven shone through. And what happened? The angels were singing, glory to God in the highest. Why were they doing that? Because angels can't see into the future, but they can look back. And just like we saw in the video a few minutes ago, how all, those, all the things of the Old Testament came to a, a natural conclusion that God would send his anointed one. And the angels of heaven, of heaven saw all of that. They could see the timeline. They could see what God had done through all of that. And all of a sudden, here it is. This is Jesus the Christ who has been born to you today. He said it to Isaiah. Did you remember that? And now he's here. And the angels couldn't contain themselves. So how can we contain ourselves? When we have this very great, great and precious salvation in our hands, in our hearts, given to us by, the, by Jesus Christ our Lord, how can we keep it to ourselves? And so we sing during the Christmas season a nice little song that we probably don't even pay much attention to, a nice little song that says this, Go, tell it on the mountain. How can we look at the prophecies of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and keep it to ourselves? I ask you and I challenge you this morning.